Hi, welcome to 20th Century Facts and Events, the podcast that tries to give some context for the stories and headlines that have shaped our consciousness in recent history. This is Greg Brown. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate it on Apple Podcasts. All good ratings help. And if you have a minute, send me an email from wherever you are listening to this. You can reach me at 20thCenturyFacts at gmail.com and let me know what you think. This is the fourth and final part of this series on the partition of India and Pakistan. The headliner, finally. The entire purpose of this four-part series was to make it here and learn how India and Pakistan in their present form came to be and at what cost to the people there. If you missed the first parts, I recommend going back to learn about the rich history of the Asian subcontinent. The last episode ended with the 1936 election, which resulted in a resounding victory for the Indian National Congress, the party of Mahatma Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, among many, many others. Congress, over the previous 15 years, had done its best to portray itself as the party for all Indians, regardless of religion or caste. And in that effort, as they grew in power, it became a de facto coalition of many different viewpoints, who saw in Congress the way to power after the end of British rule. But that did not mean that they were unified in their intentions or goals. As the Congress star grew larger, any and all groups sought to join it because it looked ultimately destined to be the party of power. Within that coalition were socialists, communists, pro-Hindu groups, moderates and conservatives. The All India Muslim League had not gained any significant representation in the 1936 elections, which effectively eliminated them from power. There were still Muslims in Congress, and many Muslims across the country who did not recognize the need for their own representation. I'll stick in a bit of my own editorial content here. I find it remarkable how the themes of the conflicts that I've covered in my series so far have so many similarities. India has an incredibly rich but also violent history. I touched on some of that in the previous episodes. The result of this history was a melting pot of culture, religion, language and custom, all of which had grown together over centuries of cohabitation. In many regions, Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs identified more with their region than their religion. They would have happily identified themselves as Punjabis, Bengalis, Rajputs, Sindhis or whatever. They were not Muslims from Calcutta or Hindus from Delhi or Sikhs from Lahore. India is a huge country and people had been identified by region. It was not until the struggle for independence from the British that politics began to force people into religious identity boxes. It seems remarkably similar to what happened in Bosnia. Serbs, Croats and Bosnian Muslims had coexisted together peacefully, definitely with a violent history, but it was a shared violent history. It was not until politicians fanned the flames of identity politics that the cohesion began to break down. I ended the last part mentioning that because the All India Muslim League had lost the elections, the idea of Pakistan was born. That's a simplification. The idea of separately governed, Muslim-dominated provinces had been simmering for a while by 1936-37, but it had been more of a pragmatic tool. 
Northern India did have a large Muslim population, and it seemed unjust for that large minority to not be given a voice in a Hindu-majority country. The original idea was not meant to be a separate country, but still a part of a united, independent India. It's a crazy thing that what began as a bargaining chip by the League and Jinnah in the pre-independence years morphed over time into a political movement whose consequences would be the deaths of up to a million people and the displacement of up to 12 million others. Prior to the elections, Muhammad Ali Jinnah had returned from living in England for much of the early 1930s. His exile was self-imposed and by some accounts a direct result of his disillusionment with the state of Indian politics. There had been a time when Jinnah seemed to be poised to lead a united Congress, but by the early 30s, Nehru and Gandhi's stars seemed to shine brighter than Jinnah's. The magnitude of the Muslim League's loss in the elections helped shape a new path forward for Jinnah. A path that incorporated not just independent Muslim provinces within a post-Raj united India, but a path to a divided India nation that would become both India and Pakistan, the land of the pure in Persian. The role of the Muslim League traditionally had been to speak for the Muslims of India, and as long as it seemed that they would be shut out of power, they were content to keep the British Raj in place rather than succumb to a Hindu Raj. An elected Congress had its own challenges. The Viceroy had achieved some success in persuading the leaders of the princely states of a way forward after the Raj, but Congress wanted nothing if not a completely united India Federation that incorporated everything in India. And while Jinnah ramped up the Islamic rhetoric for an independent Muslim state that would of course welcome all religions, Congress worked towards its own version of a post-colonial India with its new political powers granted by the elections. Then came September 1939. There's so much going on in India that it's easy to forget the context of the world at large, and it is extraordinary for all of the wrong reasons. By the fall of 1939, the Japanese had been in China for more than two years. It had been a year since Germany had annexed Austria. The Spanish Civil War had just ended. The world was a powder keg. On September 3, 1939, the Viceroy, Lord Linlithgow, declared war on Germany on behalf of India, without so much as informing Nehru, Jinnah or Gandhi or anyone else in the Indian government. Nehru was infuriated. For all of the talk of potential self-government, the Raj could still submit 400 million Indians to a war that it did not feel like theirs without so much as letting their leaders know in advance. If the situation in India was complicated before the war, it became more so during the course of. Initially, in their frustration, Congress did not support it and instead used it as a bargaining chip. In other words, if Britain wanted support from Congress and India, she would need to promise complete India independence after the war. Viceroy Linlithgow responded that it would be impossible to promise that without considering the role that Muslims would play in a future India. And like other countries at the time, there was far from a unified view of the conflict within India. Subhas Chandra Rose was a nationalist congressman who admired the strongmen of Europe and spent time in Berlin courting fascist aid and getting rid of the British. He helped form a small Indian National Front army in Germany with captured Indian troops from the African Front. He later went by German submarine, then Japanese submarine, to the Pacific Theater where he was put in charge of the Indian National Army, 
this had been recruited from the POWs from the Singapore campaign once Singapore had fallen to the Japanese in early 1942. As the Japanese advanced further west and occupied Burma, the Raj became extremely threatened. Part of Japanese propaganda in this part of the world was the slogan, Asia for the Asiatics, which gained some traction with India. There was a persistent belief that there were fifth columnists in India who would gladly rise to help the Japanese oust the British Raj from the subcontinent. There almost certainly was an element of India's society that believed that, but it was never clear how much of a threat that was. Not helping matters was Gandhi's insistence that the only reason the Japanese were even attacking was because the Raj was there. He felt that if the British left, the Japanese would stop fighting. Nehru was fiercely anti-fascist, and Gandhi was known to say some peculiar things about Nazism and Hitler. Gandhi, at least initially, thought that Hitler was not as bad as how he was being depicted. He thought that since Nazi Germany was achieving victories by annexing Austria and the Sudetenland, then winning such monumental victories quickly, he was preserving life. Gandhi was interpreting Blitzkrieg as a means of saving lives. He advised the British to give up fighting, to run their own Satyagraha campaign, fully believing that when faced with complete abdication of aggression, Germany would back down. Certainly his most controversial statement of the time, related to the Holocaust, and in 1945, and this one I will quote so that I do not misspeak, quote, It is the greatest crime of our time, but the Jews should have offered themselves to the butcher's knife. They should have thrown themselves into the sea from the cliffs, as it is, they succumbed anyway in their millions." End quote. Gandhi's personal commitment to Satyagraha, and by this time his delusional optimism that it could succeed in the face of anything, did not permit him to see the reality of what was happening. Winston Churchill had come to power once the war started, and he was old school in his thoughts on the British Empire. I will return to a quote from the last episode indicative of Churchill's thinking. Quote, England, apart from her empire in India, ceases forever to be a great power. End quote. He believed that the British Raj should be there indefinitely. It was not a feeling shared by President Roosevelt. Roosevelt famously believed in the self-determination of peoples and countries, yet somehow Churchill didn't think that applied to Great Britain and India. Yet there was significant need to bring India's support to the war effort. In 1941, from the President's point of view, the war in Asia was beginning to feel like a rescue operation for the British Empire. Japan was threatening India's borders to the east, and with Hitler's Operation Barbarossa into the Soviet Union in full swing, there was also concern that the Axis would continue through Russia, then Afghanistan and the Khyber Pass, like so many earlier invading armies into the Indus Valley of northern India. We can look at this now with the advantage of hindsight and say that, well, of course that wouldn't happen. The Nazis lost to Stalingrad and would never have had the ability to defeat Russia, let alone evade Afghanistan. But in 1941, Nazi Germany dominated all of Europe with the exception of the neutral countries of Switzerland and Sweden. If Barbarossa succeeded in defeating Russia, India could have indeed been the next target. Congress's stonewalling of cooperation in the early years of the war forced Churchill to send his Labour MP Cripps to India to offer full Dominion status post-war in return for their support during the war. 
And despite the political rhetoric, in many ways India was engaged in World War II, but not fully committed politically. Indian troops were fighting, they were in Burma, Singapore and Africa. As in World War I, there were specific swaths of Indian society that were dutiful and militaristic. The same traditions that had been the Sepoys and soldiers in previous generations. Sikhs, Rajputs, Bengalis, to name but a few. But Cripps' deal had some serious flaws as Congress saw it. They were presented with an interim government which would not have any real power. England was not willing to give that up yet. India would also be denied its own control of defense. There was a legitimate concern that India would seek a separate peace with Japan given the current anti-British sentiment in India. The Allies couldn't have that. And the post-war dominion was completely outside the realm of the Congress goal of a unified India. In it, any province or princely state could opt out of the post-war India. Remember, there were over 600 princely states, not to mention the provinces that Jinnah hoped for in the new Pakistan. So Congress refused. Even if we are going to give the best intentions to everyone at the time, the British offer was meant to take concrete steps toward an eventual self-rule in India without giving everything up. And there were other interests to consider than Congress. The princely states, particularly the large ones like Hyderabad, Rajputana, Mysore and Kashmir, were not eager to join a Congress-ruled India. Under the Raj they had nominal independence, but no guarantee of that in Congress's vision of a united India. And the question of what about the Muslims was ongoing and concerning. At this time Jinnah's Pakistan was still a pipe dream, but some accommodation had to be made for the Muslim minority in the country. By the summer of 1942, the Japanese army had captured Burma, now Myanmar, and the Raj's main raison d'etre, the defense of India, was being severely challenged. With the fall of Burma, 40,000 India POWs joined the Indian National Army fighting with Japan. Their fight under Subhas Chandra Bose was specifically oriented towards Indian independence and ejecting the Raj. So after significant debate and still with trepidation among many, the All India Congress launched its Quit India campaign on August 8, 1942. Viceroy Linlithgow would say that the Raj had not been faced with any challenge like it since the 1857 mutiny. Quit India was effectively an ultimatum to the Raj. Leave India or we will make you leave it. The Congress called on their supporters to make the country ungovernable. Don't go to work, don't attend school, block railroads, cut communication lines, grind the Indian civil service to a halt. But Linlithgow and the Raj were not caught blind. They knew it was coming. And they knew it was not universally supported. Muslims and Sikhs largely ignored the call for Hartal or mass protest. The day after the Quit India campaign kicked off, the Raj arrested and imprisoned Gandhi, Nehru and most of the Congress leadership using that Defense of India Act of 1915 which allowed the Raj to detain seditionists without trial. Congress supporters broadcast of Gandhi's arrest by loudspeaker through cities and the Hartals quickly grew to riots. 
There were attacks on Europeans, railway lines were torn up, protests in the streets by the thousands against the Raj. But they were not having it. Police were called in, even troops were sent to quell the riots. In some instances, protesters were strafed by RAF planes, killing agitators. And Churchill loved it. He loved being able to destroy the India Congress. Another famous Churchill quote of the day, quote, I have not become the king's first minister to, in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. End quote. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, leader of the All India Muslim League, was dismissive of the Quit India campaign. Jinnah said that the Muslims would be glad to see the end of the Raj, but to not trade it for a Hindu Raj. But Quit India did prove that Congress could influence the masses, even so far as to risk their lives to rid themselves of the British. However, the Congress leaders just handed Jinnah the gift of power. When the leaders were rounded up, Jinnah was not imprisoned because he was not Congress and he had not supported Quit India. So guess who suddenly had a national stage with no one to share it with? Jinnah. The Muslim League had performed terribly in the elections of 1936, attracting less than 5% of the Muslim vote. When elections would take place in 1946, post-war, the League achieved over 75% of the Muslim vote. Because of the view that Congress was treasonous, British governors started to replace Congress-friendly ministers with Muslim Leaguers, and within a year of Quit India starting, the League held power in the majority of the provinces that Jinnah had planned as part of Pakistan. The Quaid Iazam, great ruler. Jinnah's recently given moniker was now a rising star and attracting crowds like what Nehru and Gandhi had been doing before the war. And he preached for Pakistan with a new intensity. Jinnah repeatedly stated, quote, As far as Muslim India is concerned, we are not going to budge an inch for the position we have taken. Nothing will make us swerve from our goal of Pakistan. End quote. But Pakistan remained a dream, not only in the physical sense, but even ideologically. There is a significant belief that the idea was only ever meant to attract a following and be used as a negotiating tactic within the post-war United India. Jinnah himself refused to flesh out the details. With fewer details, every supporter could imagine what he wanted in the new Pakistan. Poor Muslim agriculturalists could imagine freedom from Hindu lenders. Wealthy Muslim landlords could imagine larger estates. Muslim politicians and bureaucrats would imagine high posts and more power. But what would the reality be? Despite the increased Muslim political clout, Pakistan would not be a cakewalk. Jinnah would spend much of 1944 at odds with the leader of the Punjab, Malik Kizar, the head of the Unionist coalition there. Muslims were a slight majority in the Punjab, but they would require the powerful Sikhs and Hindu communities to rule effectively. I hate to be supremely naive, but why can't we just all get along? The Punjab was working well, but Pakistan would not work well without it. It was the hub of economic activity. Without the Punjab, Pakistan would be an uphill battle. And in the words of one Sikh extremist of the day, quote, the Muslim League will have to pass through an ocean of Sikh blood to establish Pakistan." End quote. During the same time period that the Raj was dealing with the Quit India movement, there began to be predictions of a massive shortfall in agricultural production in Bengal. A cyclone hit and flooded large areas south of Calcutta. Describing the aftermath, Janam Mukherjee writes, quote, 
Corpses lay scattered over several thousand square miles of devastated land. 7,400 villages were partly or wholly destroyed, and standing floodwaters remained for weeks in at least 1,600 villages. Cholera, dysentery, and other waterborne diseases flourished. 527,000 houses and 1,900 schools were lost. Over a thousand square miles of the most fertile paddy land in the province was entirely destroyed, and the standing crop over an additional 3,000 square miles was damaged." End quote. Crops were affected by brown spot disease, which was spread by the flooding. The fall of Burma to the Japanese eliminated imports of over a million tons of rice to India. The shortage of food, a significant part of which was earmarked for Indian troops, led to hoarding by profiteers and the upper classes, and increasing prices that the rural class was unable to pay. Adding to this chaos was the unwillingness of farmers to cooperate fully with the Raj, and a British Prime Minister and War Cabinet who was at best unsympathetic to India because of their ungratefulness as they perceived it to the Raj. The results of mismanagement, natural calamity and neglect would be the death of between 2 and 3 million people in the Bengali famine of 1943 and 44. Eventually, of course, the war would end. And spoiler alert, for those of you who may not know, the Allies won. The post-war world was quite different from before. Britain was effectively broke. It owed billions to India. This was far from the 17 and 1800s when it was pulling wealth from India at a phenomenal rate to fuel its own empire. Now Britain was indebted. The UK had to borrow heavily from the US to help service its debts, and the government estimated that they could not afford another year of empire expenses. Churchill was quickly out of government after the war, and it became an immediate goal to give self-rule to India. There were small mutinies in the Royal Indian Navy, which were quickly suppressed, but it was clear that Britain would not be able to rule through military might. It could ill afford to, either politically or monetarily. Indians wanted the British to leave, and many of the British in India wanted to leave. There were British soldiers, still stationed there after the war, who wanted to go home, and with the increasing belligerence to their presence, they could see little reason to stay. Congress leaders were let out of prison and had to come to terms with the new political reality. The idea of Pakistan had grown during their almost three years in prison. Jinnah's position could not be dismissed out of hand by Congress, so the goal became to expose its inherent weaknesses. The idea of Pakistan was to provide a home for Muslims, but in the Punjab, for instance, there were almost equal numbers of non-Muslims. If it was alright for Muslims to secede from India, why wouldn't it be okay for Sikhs to secede from Pakistan, taking half, if not more, of the Punjabi wealth and population with them? That was naturally untenable for Jinnah. His developing idea of Pakistan included a complete Punjab and a complete Bengal. At its height of speculation, the League hoped for a belt of northern India stretching from the eastern Afghani border to the western Bengali border essentially all of the original Mughal India. That was dismissed, but Pakistan was meant to include Bengal and Punjab provinces. This was all hyperbole until the elections. With a sizable portion of the Muslim electorate voting for the League, things were getting tense. 
This is no longer just political rhetoric debated behind closed doors in smoky negotiating rooms in Delhi and Lahore between British-educated Indian lawyers. Jinnah had unchained the beast of religiosity, something he had long criticized Gandhi for doing, mixing religion and politics. But suddenly Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs were coalescing and seeing each other as the other. Calcutta alone had a population of over 4 million people with roughly three-quarter Hindu and a quarter Muslim who began to view each other over a growing divide of ever-growing suspicion. The elections of 1946 became a referendum on Pakistan. Now the question was no longer the end of the Raj, but what would be left after? Muslim voters were either expressly told or came to believe that their vote was based in faith. Although Jinnah expressed the same ideals of a multi-ethnic and religious Pakistan as Nehru talked about in the United India, they both seemed naive in retrospect. I have little doubt that the majority of India's Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs and others would have lived together very well. They have. They have since. But for those in power, the opportunities to have settled their differences and worked toward a common goal had come and gone. In March of 1946, a three-man cabinet mission arrived in Delhi from London to negotiate the end of the Raj and the end of the British Empire. The deal proposed a federal India with a weak central government responsible only for defense, international relations, and national infrastructure, in effect filling the void the Raj would leave behind, with most governing power going to the provinces. After 10 years, provinces could review and vote to leave the Union. On the surface, this seemed as doomed as the Crips offer from 1942. It did not offer Jinnah his Pakistan, and, and it did not guarantee a unified India if provinces could secede later. But to the surprise of all, Jinnah agreed, albeit reluctantly, likely being aware that the likely eventuality of Pakistan would be a wounded Punjab and a divided Bengal. Jinnah sold it to the League by stating that it was better than the truncated Pakistan that might result if things went further. Even Nehru and Sardar Patel, who was traditionally a hardliner, were willing to accept the plan that was proposed to take effect by mid-1948. But there was one holdout. Gandhi. The proposed government included five Muslim leaguers, as well as Congress members and individuals representing Sikhs, Parsis and Christian communities. Altogether, seems like a winning idea, no? No. Gandhi opposed because there were no Congress Muslims in the government. But that was not even what tanked the deal. Both Jinnah and Nehru addressed respectively the League in Congress. In his address to the All India Congress, Nehru said that despite the deal, once the Raj was out, they would do as they wanted which vindicated the suspicion and mistrust that had been pervasive in the months of negotiation. It is clear that this was the point of no return. Churchill had once said that the Hindu-Muslim divide in India worked in the Raj's favor. If the two communities were at odds with one another, they could not unite to force out the Raj. But now that the Raj was leaving anyway, law and order was about to fall apart. Once Nehru's words were out, Jinnah rejected the cabinet mission's deal. He quickly flipped the betrayal around and called out all Muslims to show how they felt. In Jinnah's words, quote, we will have either a divided India or a destroyed India, end quote. He called for a direct action day on August 16, 1946. 
Muslim newspapers were predicting apocalyptic rule by a Nehru-dominated Congress, comparing them to the Nazis and Muslims to the Jews of Europe. I don't think you could have gotten more inflammatory in 1946. The current viceroy, Archibald Wavell, who had replaced Linlithgow in 1943, pleaded with Jinnah, Nehru and Gandhi to defuse the situation and talk to each other to work something out. Jinnah and Nehru met at Jinnah's Bombay mansion on August 15th, the day before direct action day was to begin. These men had known each other for decades, yet now both mistrusted the other's intentions to an extreme. Nehru undervalued the concern of Muslims in the new India, and Jinnah would never be able to stomach working under the much younger Nehru within any form of Indian government. I'm going to take a quick break here, and before we go to our actual sponsor, talk a little bit about my real company. My main gig is our family furniture business, camlinfurniture.com, or just Camlin Furniture in the pre.com era. We make household furniture for every room of your house, home office, bedroom, beds, dressers, nightstands, desks, bookcases, uh, dining room furniture, dining room tables, wooden chairs, sideboards, buffets, credenzas, and living room furniture, TV stands, media stands. We do custom as well. We do vanities, all kinds of stuff based outside of Montreal, Canada. If you're anywhere in North America and you are looking for any of the above or something unusual and high quality, check us out at camlinfurniture.com. I'm also going to take a second to promote my son's band, Group Project. They are just breaking out on the scene. They have millions of listens on certain songs on Spotify and you can find them on iTunes or Spotify. So that's Group Project. Thank you. Without any agreement being reached, direct action day arrived. And Calcutta, the capital of Bengal, erupted in violence. The league governor of Bengal, Surawadi, supported and encouraged the agitators. Initially, there were mainly just large riots. Some injuries, a few deaths, but nothing out of the ordinary for large crowds of angry people. But later that night, things changed. Armed gangs of Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs roamed the streets looking for victims to literally murder in cold blood. These armed thugs wouldn't face each other for pitched battles. They were just out to kill. Armed Muslim men would find a small community of Hindu homes in a Muslim area, set fire to it, and killed anyone who tried to flee. Hindu gundas would do the same to Muslims in other areas. Shopkeepers were pulled from their businesses and butchered on the street. Rickshaw drivers would have their throats slit for just being in the wrong place and the wrong religion. By morning there were bodies littering the streets. A British commander, a veteran of the Western Front, likened the carnage to the Battle of the Somme. Life photographer Margaret Bourke White, who had seen Buchenwald, said that Calcutta was worse. As the violence escalated, regular people joined the gangs to butcher their neighbors. Members of the small Sikh community in Calcutta rode around on trucks, slashing at Muslims with great broadswords. The separate communities had been preparing for this. It was not spontaneous. The intensifying rhetoric and rabid nationalism had lit a fuse. 
An ad in the Calcutta newspapers for August 16th read as follows. Today is direct action day. Today, Muslims of India dedicate their lives and all they possess to the cause of freedom. Today, let every Muslim swear in the name of Allah to resist aggression. Direct action is now their only course. Because they offered peace, but peace was spurned. They honored their word, but they were betrayed. They claimed liberty, but were offered thraldom. Now might alone can secure their right. But the violence was perpetrated by both Hindus and Muslims. Fear and anger drove them all. Muslims feared they would have no voice and were fighting against the oppressor. Hindus in Bengal feared that Pakistan would meet the end for Mother India as a nation. And as the rampages continued, many regular people felt that their choice was either kill or be killed. It took 45,000 troops and three days to get the city under control. And by then, there were corpses piled two stories high in some places. The final death toll is disputed, but it is estimated to be 5,000 dead, with another 10 to 15,000 wounded, slashed with machetes or swords or burned. Direct Action Day led to the Great Calcutta Killing. Word of the atrocities in Calcutta, perpetrated by both sides and politicized by both sides, spread and similar violent outbreaks occurred. From the rural district of Noakali in Bengal, word came in of ethnic cleansing. Muslim villagers had sealed off the area and cleansed the area of as many as 5,000 Hindus by killing them or forcibly converting them to Islam in reprisal for what had happened in Calcutta. In October, a Noakali day was declared in Bihar province where political speeches extorted the people to avenge the Hindu martyrs of Bengal. Random stabbings began the next day. A week later, as many as 40 Muslims were killed at a train station and groups of thousands of armed Hindu mobs were stalking Muslim villages and wiping them out. Thousands of Muslims were killed and hundreds of thousands fled. Initially, members of the Indian National Congress thought that the Muslim League was exaggerating the killings in Bihar. But once on the scene, Nehru wrote to his Congress colleagues in Delhi, quote, the real picture that I now find is quite as bad and something even worse than anything that they had suggested. There has been a definite attempt on the part of Hindu mobs to exterminate Muslims. They have killed indiscriminately men, women, and children en masse. End quote. The violence spread westward, first toward Delhi, then beyond to Punjab and the northwest frontier. Appeals from the political leaders amounted to nothing. Gandhi was appalled. He always believed that the better angels in both groups would prevail. Unfortunately though, the human condition is far from his ideals. Gandhi would spend five months in Noakali trying to bring the communities together. Nehru would travel through affected areas and berate people for the murderous rampages, on many occasions risking his own life to stop the mobs. In Bihar, it was a very one-sided fight. Calcutta had been different factions of armed gangs, but in Bihar, mainly armed Hindu farmers eliminated the perceived Muslim threat. This country was not yet officially involved in a civil war, but it looked to be barreling towards them like a freight train. No one had a solution to what was happening. The longer the violence continued, the more the British wanted out. Neither Congress nor League officials were able or very willing to bring people to justice for the killings, maimings, and thefts. 
If you're listening to this in a quote, Western country, you may have to take a minute to consider what's going on. I know that from my own perspective, the last 20 years of Western media portrayal of Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and fictional Hollywood portrayals of militant Muslims have colored my view somewhat. You have to eliminate that portrayal from this equation to grasp what was happening at the end of the Raj. Regardless of which side was on the receiving end of the violence, they were not guilty of anything except being part of one community or another. The atrocities were often taking place in primitive rural villages with armed gangs of farmers taking revenge on unarmed Muslim families for some perceived event that they had heard had happened hundreds of miles away. Basically all speculation and rumor, and vice versa in other areas. These people weren't basing themselves on stories on CNN. There was frequently underlying animosity without the religious tension even. In Bengal, Muslim peasant farmers were often indebted to wealthier Hindu landlords. In Bihar, it was the opposite. So how much of the violence was excuses and could be more attributed to opportunity than nationalism? Unfortunately, things would only get worse. As the mob violence spread westward, it was headed straight for the Punjab. The Punjab had a Muslim majority population, but also strong and powerful Hindu and Sikh communities. It had a long tradition of militarism. Up to a million of the two and a half million men serving in the Indian army during World War II were from the Punjab. Some Sikh leaders had promised oceans of blood would be spilled if there was any attempt to make them live in a Muslim Raj. As is typical even today, the extreme view makes the headlines. I'm sure there were many people who would have been perfectly content to just continue living normally without the threat of partition and or held little animosity toward a new state. But there were also those that still clung to the execution of the fifth Sikh guru several hundred years earlier at the hands of Jahangir and the beheading of the ninth guru at the hands of Aurangzeb, the Muslim Mughal rulers in the 17th century. In the time from the elections of 1946 until partition, militias were forming along communal lines. The Muslim League National Guard and the Hindu RSS, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. Both of these groups had existed for more than a decade, but as the mob violence increased, they were increasingly militant and leaders in the killings. Extremely wealthy Sikh princes in the Punjab began arming their own private armies in response to Muslim killings. The coalition ruler of the Punjab, who we discussed earlier, Kizar, banned both the RSS and the League Guards who were growing more powerful than could be controlled. The banning and subsequent arrests of League Guards resulted in massive protests against the Punjabi government, and Kizar grew tired of fighting the incessant riots. In February of 1947, amid growing domestic pressure and increasingly unstable India, the British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, announced that they would be getting out of India by the summer of 1948, in just over one year. Finally, the Raj would allow Indians to govern themselves. Atlee had grown increasingly discouraged by the intransigence of the Congress and League leaders who blocked every effort for a productive way forward. So by announcing an imminent deadline, there was some hope that the Indian leaders would make their own settlements. Atlee had his own domestic issues to worry about in a country on the verge of bankruptcy, facing housing issues, food shortages, and financial ruin in the aftermath of World War II. I have to think that Atlee believed by setting a deadline, 
Congress and the League would definitely come to an agreement for a united India, because the alternative was overwhelming to consider. Looking at the big picture, from August of 1946 through until where we are now in early March 1947, there had been stabbings, beatings, killings, protests, riots, and mob murder squads almost every day across most of northern India. It was not officially supported by either party, but it was also beyond the control of Jinnah and Nehru to stop. They were not calling the shots. These were mainly grassroots and in some circumstances spontaneous outbreaks, with some organization in parts of the party that is unspoken of and unclear. Partition was looking like the only way out of this morass to the leaders of both parties who had been actively working toward India's self-rule for decades. But the reality of splitting the country in two is boggling as well. The Indian army, the Indian civil service, the military assets, the personnel, and all of those more mundane issues would have to be separated. And that's not even giving a second thought to the people who were involved. After Atlee's announcement to the British parliament, Kizar resigned his station as premier of the Punjab to his replacement, who would have been the League's local representative, Mamdot. Immediately, supporters of Pakistan, including the League Guard, started to celebrate, and militant Sikhs and the RSS militia began to prepare to fight the Muslim Raj. The killing too began almost immediately, by Muslims in some areas and by Sikhs and Hindus in others. The game became domination. According to the Prime Minister's comments, Whoever controlled the Punjab when the British left would be granted the keys to the kingdom. Except that wasn't the reality. It was apparent that the possible only solution to halt the violence would be to split the Punjab, which was no one's goal. Jinnah and the League wanted a united Punjab to be part of Pakistan. The Sikhs wanted a united Punjab as part of India. So a split satisfies nobody. And there was no clean way to do it. The bureaucratic issues alone were problematic. Where do you separate the administrations, the education system, the health? Punjab was an integrated society with Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs working together in the civil service, education and the army. If you divide the Punjab, what happens to the Muslims or Hindus on the wrong side of the divide? If I'm a Muslim, do I have to go to the West? What about the economy? Much of the fertile growing land of the Sikhs lay in the Western Punjab that would arbitrarily go to Muslim Punjab. What about them? With the speed that all these decisions were being made, there hadn't really been a lot of consideration given to how to deal with any of these particular issues. And it's hard to tell if there's any real opportunity that the politicians could have improved the situation. Jinnah could have offered concrete assurances to the Sikhs. They are a proud, powerful, united community with roots stretching back 500 years in the Punjab. Even now, after 75 years, I can see the logic of them joining Pakistan. In Pakistan, the Sikh minority would have had a strong voice in a smaller country, compared to being a very small minority in a united India. But on several occasions, it seems Jinnah brushed aside the concerns of the Sikh leaders, choosing instead to focus on the dominance of the Muslims and his infallibility of leadership once Pakistan existed. Atlee's announcement about British withdrawal was accompanied by the appointment of a new viceroy to India to replace Wavell, who had lost the confidence of both Congress and the Muslim League. Lord Louis Mountbatten, who some of you might know from the series The Crown on Netflix, 
was Queen Elizabeth's second cousin and Prince Philip Mountbatten's uncle. He'd been serving in the British Navy and during World War II had been Supreme Allied Commander, Southeast Asia Command. He was extremely charismatic and handsome like a Hollywood leading man and by most accounts was diplomatic and well-intentioned. But uh, many of his actions in the military and diplomatically have had criticism for being more ambitious than what Dickie Mountbatten was capable of pulling off. There's no question his pedigree was unmatched. Over his life he was honored with no fewer than 50 titles and awards. Young Louis had grown up visiting his cousins in the Russian royal court and traveled with Prince Edward before his short-lived reign. He had also had experience working with independence movements at the end of World War II, working with Aung San of Burma to create an interim government there and even promoting the cause of Ho Chi Minh to the French. Mountbatten arrived in India with his wife Edwina at the end of March 1947 to work out how to get the British out and keep India in the Commonwealth. He worked well with Nehru almost upon arrival, as the two shared similar goals for getting the British out and creating a united India with a strong central government. Edwina Mountbatten would also create a strong connection with Jawaharlal Nehru that did not go unnoticed by Jinnah. On a side note, the relationship between the two is widely believed to have been a romantic one. Jinnah had found a sympathetic ear in Churchill, who claimed to never have trusted Hindus. But the relationship between Mountbatten and Jinnah was strained from the beginning. Faced with the apparent Sikh uprising in the Punjab, and the continued obstinacy of Nehru and Jinnah to concede anything to one another, Mountbatten set about creating the plan for independence. He was certainly aware of what the various factions wanted. Nehru wanted an undivided, multi-religious India that was not always the same thing that the other senior members of Congress wanted. Jinnah wanted the five Muslim-dominant provinces to be the basis for the independent Pakistan, which was inherently against what Nehru wanted. And at its most extreme, included an 800-mile-wide corridor from Afghanistan to Burma joining the two halves of Pakistan from the northwest frontier province to Bengal. The princely states wanted to remain independent, and the Sikhs wanted the Punjab to remain whole and even have their own Sikhistan. A month later, at the end of April, Mountbatten had a working plan that would please no one, and he returned to London to get cabinet's approval in late May. In a nutshell, Punjab and Bengal would be split into East and West, resulting in a diminished Pakistan, and each part would be allowed to vote where to join. Provinces and kingdoms would be able to vote if they wanted to join either India or Pakistan. On June 3rd, Viceroy Mountbatten gave a radio address to the nation. I have it here, and bear with me, the sound quality is not perfect, and I did listen to try to edit the length, but I think he was fairly succinct in his points, and it's a good listen. It will be read to you tonight, giving the final decision of His Majesty's government as to the method by which power will be transferred from British to Indian hands. But before this happens, I want to give a personal message to the people of India as well as a short account of the discussions which I have held with the leaders of the political parties and which have led up to the advice I tendered to His Majesty's government during my recent visit to London. Since my arrival in India at the end of March, 
I have spent almost every day in consultation with as many of the leaders and representatives of as many communities and interests as possible. I wish to say how grateful I am for all the information and helpful advice they have given me. Nothing I have seen or heard in the past few weeks has shaken my firm opinion that with a reasonable measure of goodwill between the communities, a unified India would be by far the best solution of the problem. For more than a hundred years, 400 millions of you have lived together and this country has been administered as a single entity. This has resulted in unified communications, defense, postal services, and currency, an absence of tariffs and customs barriers, and the basis for an integrated political economy. My great hope was that communal differences would not destroy all this. My first course in all my discussions was therefore to urge the political leaders to accept unreservedly the cabinet mission plan of the 16th of May, 1946. In my opinion, that plan provides the best arrangement that can be devised to meet the interests of all the communities of India. My great regret, it has been impossible to obtain agreement, either on the Cabinet Mission Plan or on any other plan that would preserve the unity of India. But there can be no question of coercing any large areas in which one community has a majority to live against their will under a government in which another community has a majority. And the only alternative to coercion is partition. But when the Muslim League demanded the partition of India, Congress used the same arguments for demanding, in that event, the partition of certain provinces. In my mind, this argument is unassailable. In fact, neither side proved willing to leave a substantial area in which their community have a majority under the government of the other. I am, of course, just as much opposed to the partition of provinces as I am to the partition of India herself, and for the same basic reason. For just as I feel there is an Indian consciousness which should transcend communal differences, so I feel there is a Punjabi and Bengali consciousness which has evoked a loyalty to their province. And so I felt it was essential that the people of India themselves should decide this question of partition. The procedure for enabling them to decide for themselves whether they want the British to hand over power to one or two governments is set out in the statement which will be read to you. But there are one or two points on which I should like to add a note of explanation. It was necessary in order to ascertain the will of the people of the Punjab, Bengal and part of Assam to lay down boundaries between the Muslim majority areas and the remaining areas. But I want to make it clear that the ultimate boundaries will be settled by a boundary commission and will almost certainly not be identical with those which have been provisionally adopted. We have given careful consideration to the position of the six. This valiant community forms about an eighth of the population of the Punjab. But they are so distributed 
that any partition of this province will inevitably divide you. All of us who have the good of the sick community at heart are very sorry to think that the partition of the Punjab, which they themselves desire, cannot avoid splitting them to a greater or lesser extent. The exact degree of the split will be left to the boundary commission on which they will, of course, be represented. The whole plan may not be perfect, but like all plans, its success will depend on the spirit of goodwill with which it is carried out. I've always felt that once it was decided in what way to transfer power, the transfer should take place at the earliest possible moment. But the dilemma was that if we waited until a constitutional setup for all India was agreed, we should have to wait a long time, particularly if partition were decided on. Whereas, if we handed over power before the constituent assemblies had finished their work, we should leave the country without a constitution. The solution to this dilemma, which I put forward, is that His Majesty's government should transfer power now to one or two governments of British India, each having dominion status, as soon as the necessary arrangements can be made. This, I hope, will be within the next few months. I'm glad to announce that His Majesty's government have accepted this proposal and are already having legislation prepared for introduction in Parliament this session. As a result of these decisions, the special function of the India office will no longer have to be carried out, and some other machinery will be set up to conduct future relations between His Majesty's government and India. I wish to emphasize that this legislation will not impose any restriction on the power of India as a whole, or the two states, if there is partition, to decide in the future their relationship to each other and to other member states of the British Commonwealth. Thus, the way is now open to an arrangement by which power can be transferred many months earlier than the most optimistic of us thought possible, and at the same time leave it to the people of British India to decide for themselves on their future which is the declared policy of His Majesty's government. I have made no mention of the Indian states since the new decisions of His Majesty's government are concerned with the transfer of power in British India. If the transfer of power is to be effected in a peaceful and orderly manner, every single one of us must bend all his efforts to the task. This is no time for bickering much less for the continuation in any shape or form of the disorders and lawlessness of the past few months. Do not forget what a narrow margin of food we are all working on. We cannot afford any toleration of violence. All of us have agreed on that. Whichever way the decision of the Indian people may go, I feel sure any British officials or officers who may be asked to remain for a while will do everything in their power to help implement that decision. His Majesty, as well as his government, have asked me to convey to all of you in India their sincere good wishes for your future and the assurance of their continued goodwill. I have faith in the future of India, 
and I'm proud to be with you all at this momentous time. May your decisions be wisely guided, and may they be carried out in the peaceful and friendly spirit of the Gandhi Jinnah of Peace. Mountbatten set the deadline for August 15th, a bare two and a half months later. None of the parties could be properly prepared for that. And there was some debate that it was not meant as a universal deadline. Firstly, it was completely arbitrary. Neither Congress, nor the League, nor His Majesty had pushed for that date. It was a Mountbatten invention. Sadar Patel, the powerful Congress politician, was pleased because it would hand over power to Congress almost immediately. Nehru less pleased because he did not want the Dominion status hanging over India's head. Mountbatten presumed that both governments would be so busy trying to arrange the details that they would be too busy to argue. As Yasmin Khan put it succinctly in her excellent book The Great Partition, quote, land, assets, and armies were to be severed in 73 days, end quote. The general rule for physical assets became 80% to India and 20% to Pakistan. The humdrum of bureaucratic wrangling over desks, lamps, shelving units, and office chairs contrasted with the ongoing physical violence in the regions that they were dividing. The vast Indian army that had been estimated would take between 5 and 10 years to separate began the unenviable task of dividing immediately. Without being given a choice, any Muslim member of the army whose home address was in the new Pakistan was transferred to serve in the Pakistani army, and the same for Hindus who would serve in India. And it was all happening at exactly the time that a strong united army was most needed to help stem the communal violence. The Bengal Boundary Commission and the Punjab Boundary Commission were set up on June 30th under the oversight of Judge Cyril Radcliffe although he had never set foot in India before. Using incomplete census data from half a decade earlier, the Boundary Commission was tasked with creating over 3,800 miles of border between East and West Pakistan and India, leaving as many Muslims in Pakistan and Hindus and Sikhs in India as possible. The Commission's final decision was only released after independence on the 15th of August, by which point thousands of refugees from both sides had been fleeing for their lives toward the border of their respective new countries. The reality of the new potential border was setting in before it even came to be. It was clear to Sikh leaders that their community would be split and to hundreds of thousands of Muslims and Hindus that they were living on the wrong side of where it would be. It's really not even possible for me to give adequate respect to all of the people who suffered and died in the 18 months surrounding partition. I'm just repeating myself by saying that thousands of Sikhs and Hindus died at the hands of armed Muslim gangs, mainly in the Punjab, and thousands of Muslims died across northern India by counterpart gangs of marauding Hindus and Sikhs. And each statistical death was an individual tragedy. Muslims in India who had been supporters of Congress and against the League still suffered despite their allegiance to India. Amritsar and Lahore, two of the largest cities in the Punjab, 
separated today by the border, became war zones in the weeks after partition, with barbed wire stretched out between the rubble dividing the Sikh and Muslim communities. Again from Yasmin Khan's book, The Great Partition, there is a passage that summarizes the violence better than I can. Quote, It is the phenomenal extent of the killing during partition which distinguishes it as an event. It affected women, children and the elderly as well as well-armed young men. Children watched as their parents were dismembered or burned alive. Women were brutally raped and had their breasts and genitals mutilated and the entire populations of villages were summarily executed. Eyewitnesses in the Punjab reported the putrid stench of corpses and the crimson blood on the walls, train concourses and roads." End quote. Rape was used regularly as a method of terror. If the scarring of the rape itself was not bad enough, women feared not being accepted back into their respective family or communities because of the stigma attached to it. And yet, there were countless stories of sacrifice and heroism where Muslims risked all to save Sikh or Hindu neighbors, and vice versa. Refugees began streaming across the border dividing the two countries even before it was settled. Somehow, no one in the halls of power had foreseen the population shift between the two fledgling countries. The ideas behind the new nations relied on the pre-partition demographics. But with the shift in population, both countries were losing significant parts of their respective human resource value. Millions of rupees left the banks of Lahore for Delhi, as many of the leaders of industry there were Hindus. India was losing thousands of skilled Muslim craftsmen and tradespeople. And that was only going to be more clear as time went on. And neither country was receiving the same refugees that were fleeing from it. The day-to-day -day would have been the immediate concern. The arrested economy during the violence and unrest. Where does your food come from? How will you eat? Who goes to work fearing they will be killed on the way there or returning home? August 15, 1947 was Independence Day for both nations. Although it did not stem the killing. As of August 15th, there existed East and West Pakistan divided by hundreds of miles by Mother India. Delhi became almost ungovernable for a time, as waves of killings by Sikh and Hindu refugees against Muslims brought the city to a halt. As many as 10,000 people were killed over several weeks in Delhi alone before the army was able to get control. The British army was evacuating as quickly as possible and avoiding the escalating conflict as much as possible. Iconic images of refugee trains literally dripping with people are one of the enduring visual representations of partition. It's estimated that 12 million people fled their homes in one direction or the other because of partition. They left by boat, plane, train, car, and millions walked. Massive refugee camps were set up in both countries to deal with a flood of people that had not been expected. Although initially both governments tried to stop the refugees from leaving, it eventually seemed more expedient to help them in order to try to get some kind of normal. But the mixed government messaging was difficult to understand for regular people, and the evolving policies were left open to broad interpretation by local officials who could manipulate the information in such a way as to encourage ethnic cleansing. In most cases, there was little encouragement needed to leave. In the areas where the violence was at its worst, people left by the thousands. 
Refugee columns would have up to 40,000 people in them, walking for days, harried by murderers, and without any support, food, water. There are stories of soldiers heading one direction or another, shooting at crowds of people leaving the countries. Other stories talk about refugee trains arriving in one country or the other, with all of the people killed inside, slashed or shot to death. Behind the scenes, things were far from settled. Both Jinnah and Nehru did what they could to scale down the rhetoric, both of them speaking of the freedom and rights that minority groups would enjoy in their respective new countries. In Jinnah's speech to the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan, he said, quote, You are free. You are free to go to your temples. You are free to go to your mosques or to any place of worship in this state of Pakistan. You may belong to any religion or caste or creed. This has nothing to do with the business of the state. End quote. And I truly believe he thought that. But Jinnah had paid lip service to the conservative elements of the Muslim League to get their support for Pakistan. His intention was not to have an Islamic state at the outset. In the same way that Nehru who had always advocated for a pluralistic India. I wonder what both would think now, almost 75 years later. Both countries were on the brink of collapse at their very inception. Pakistan had to create an administration from scratch, let alone a capital city, while India was still dealing with the princely states and how they would incorporate into United India. Those states contained almost 25% of the Indian population and up to a third of the land. The two most contentious states would prove to be Hyderabad, a central Indian state with a Muslim ruler of a Hindu majority, and Kashmir, where the Hindu Maharaja ruled over a predominantly Muslim state. Jinnah had been courting the Nizam of Hyderabad, reputedly the richest man in the world at the time, to join with Pakistan. It's strange to think how he thought that was going to work. There's hundreds of miles dividing the two. But the Nizam was facing a small communist uprising in his state at the time and had his own small private army, the Razakars. In a further complication to Indian independence, the Razakars had plans to persecute or convert the majority of the Hindus in Hyderabad to make a state more Muslim. Hyderabad wanted at the least to stay independent of India and Congress was reluctant to make any military moves against the princely state, fearing that Jinnah would respond militarily with his new Pakistani army. The other concern was that the Razakars would kill Hindus in Hyderabad, which would result in retaliatory Muslim deaths elsewhere in India. The question of Hyderabad would only be settled in 1948, when Congress ordered troops into the state to overthrow the Nizam. Kashmir would become even more contentious, with a de facto war happening between India and Pakistan within months of them becoming nations. Pakistan helped arm the Pathan tribesmen in fighting the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir, who in turn was supported by India. India supported him by flying in troops to the Himalayan foothills. And both sides were led by British officers. It is entirely another complication that has caused further wars between the two states and remains unsettled to this day. It's really hard to put a pin in this and say, that's all folks, now you know it all. The events surrounding partition resulted in 1 to 2 million people killed, 12 million people displaced, 
two countries created, Hindu and Muslim nationalists pushing for their own distinct agendas, contested border states, and the residual trauma of so much violence affected people all over the subcontinent with continued effects even today. And despite the political rhetoric by both Nehru and Jinnah about the guarantees of multiculturalism, Pakistan has witnessed cyclical Islamic fundamentalism and India has had periods of Hindu nationalism that result in the persecution of India's Muslim population. And here's a little factoid for you. India is the world's third largest Muslim population after Pakistan and Indonesia, with over 200 million Muslims today, just slightly less than Pakistan, the world's second largest Muslim country. A couple of last notes to the story. Let's call it the denouement. Early in 1948, while both countries were still unsettled and tensions were high about Hyderabad and Kashmir, Mahatma Gandhi was shot at point-blank range in the chest by a Hindu nationalist who represented part of a minority who disagreed with his efforts to unite religious groups in India. Bizarrely, Gandhi's death had a calming effect across the north, somehow uniting Hindus and Muslims in grief for the spiritual father of the nation. Later that same year, Muhammad Ali Jinnah died of tuberculosis. Both men had spent much of their lives fighting for the independence of India from the British Raj and barely lived to see what it would become. And lastly, I'm not expanding on the continuing conflict over Kashmir or even touching the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971, which resulted in the creation of Bangladesh out of East Pakistan. Suffice it to say that it was a direct result of Pakistan independence and the dissatisfaction of Bengalis. It sounds like it could be a distant sequel to this series for me. I hope you've enjoyed learning about this part of the world. The story of partition makes me feel like I have a much better understanding of the region, although I know that on an individual level, there's a lot more to know. Thanks for listening. If you want to read more about the topic, I've used the following books for this. The Great Partition by Yasmin Khan. Midnight's Furies by Nizid Hajari. Raj by Lawrence James. Indian Summer by Alex von Tunzelman. 